All right, all right. How's it going, everybody? So today we are trying out the new format. I have a new computer in front of me. And uh, yeah, let's see how this goes. Um, it took <laughs> took maybe a week, one to two weeks of emails back and forth with customer support. Um, but we are good to go. Um, yeah, so what's going to be different about today is I'm going to be playing a podcast and then uh, you know, just pausing it occasionally to, you know, to talk about what what they're mentioning. Um, the podcast I'm going to be playing for you today is between Justin Brierley, who hosted for about ten years, hosted uh, an apologetics uh, radio show and podcast called Unbelievable in the in the UK, and um, and the other person in conversation is Louise Perry, um, who is you know recently has come to prominence. She wrote a book uh, about the the sexual revolution recently, and <clears throat> anyway, has been doing a lot of great work. But um, they're going to talk about new atheism, uh, the kind of death of it as a movement. You can see this with things uh, like uh, like Sam Harris becoming this weird kind of um, half Buddhist or whatever. <laughs> you can see it in in, in multiple uh, areas of culture. I guess you can also see it with. You know the Jordan Peterson phenomenon. I guess I think that really took the uh, credibility in a, in a large part out of the New Atheist movement because it showed a broader, deeper, uh, more comprehensive uh, reality. I guess, but um, but there's some stuff I want to talk about about the state of the current church and I guess future church. And uh, and before I heard this little piece right here. Uh, I was gonna, I was gonna make these points, but he went ahead and, and made them. So, anyways, we're gonna jump in. So this is uh, between Louise Perry and Justin Brierley, and I'm gonna jump kind of in the middle here. This this kind of materialistic story of reality has kind of just been encroaching increasingly across all spheres of life. It's sort of just the default view in academia and and everything else these days, whereas it wasn't once. I think technology has a huge part to play in that almost accelerating really within the 20th century and obviously in the last couple of decades it's it feels like that as it it's sort of all kind of if it was a sort of gradual thing it is sort of only accelerated thanks to technology making everyone head in that same direction and just forcing a kind of material not just a philosophically materialist but a kind of culturally materialistic individualistic culture that we now live in so all of that i think plays into why religion institutional religion has been not no longer flavor of the month um arguably it's not just religion that's seeing that you know there are all people don't tend to join political parties much these days either because and that's a really a really fascinating point um i want to talk for a minute about an experience i had not too long ago at church so yeah so a couple of weeks ago i was at church and the pastor started to talk about you know the christian sexual ethic, I guess, right? And what struck me about it was how weird it felt. It felt like um it felt like LARPing. It felt like uh like he was cosplaying, you know what I mean? And I don't mean to suggest that, you know, this is like some hypocrisy for him personally. I'm not I'm not talking about that. What I mean is when he tried to talk about something serious, it revealed how the whole structure is designed to not be serious. So that when something serious enters the room, it feels out of place. And I think that the the Christian sexual ethic doesn't work in a culture like ours. And what I mean by that is, in a culture where everyone does their own thing and is out for themselves, there is no incentive. So putting morality to the side, right? If you think about people as going towards incentives, like if going towards you know, a carrot or away from a stick, right? So if they're incentive-driven in a culture where everyone is out for themselves, and even when you go to church, it feels like even there the church is out for its own glory, then there's no real meat to the Christian sexual ethic. I don't mean that the truth of it is any different than it used to be. I mean that no one, it, it doesn't have authority. And uh, it, it doesn't, let me put it this way, the church, it, <laughs> Christianity demands everything of you, right? But the modern church gives almost nothing. 
So if you demand everything from someone and then in, you promise them in return basically nothing, then why would you be um, confused when people don't get on board? I think that the church will continue to die and and will be reborn after it dies to a more full extent. I don't I don't see there being any real reason why the church should stop dying uh, in today's world until the goals, until the reason for its existence have changed. So another thing that happened at church, this was a couple of months ago, they're, um, they're in the process of uh, replacing their big, uh, rich building with a bigger, richer building. And, uh, and the pastor got up one day and he started to brag about how someone in the audience had taken on a part-time job to help fund the new building. I think it goes without saying that if the person was taking on a part-time job to do this, then it's easy to presume that perhaps they're not super well off. Um, and in a way, that's beautiful. You know what I mean? It's so sweet that someone would go that far, you know, that someone would like, I don't know, that someone would dedicate themselves that much. But in my view, if you're going to have someone working an extra job to build your dream, you better be sure your dream is what God really wants. And if you think about the, the the Bible verse that true religion is to meet orphans and widows in their distress, uh, then I'm not sure that the modern church is true religion. It seems to me that the modern church exists to cultivate a, a kind of collection of, you know, kind of happy um, middle-class families, which are nice and reasonably attractive so that they can attract other reasonably well-adjusted attractive people so that they can attract even more reasonably adjusted attractive people so that the pastor can be a star. And I don't even want to be, you know, too flippant about that, right? Like, do I not have that impulse? Do I not have that same greed, you know? Uh, You know, obviously I do, right? But I guess as a general rule, whatever you won't look at is what kills you. So like, look at, if you look at the past, uh, if you look at my past, right? And the mistakes I made, the things that I wouldn't look at caused those things to happen. And, And the same is true now, right? The things that I refuse to look at today are going to cause the future to go the way it does. So as just as a general life rule, whatever you won't look at, whatever you can't see is what will kill you. I guess this is reflected in scripture that my people perish due to a lack of knowledge. Um, and a lot of times it's not, uh, a lot of times I think it's a willful lack of, of understanding, right? Um, because we know that if we acknowledge certain things that our whole conception of ourself will fall. And if the church acknowledges that it exists in large part, just to grow, and that by growing, it justifies its reason for existing, and that if it must grow, and I don't mean that it must grow and that the people there must become deeper and richer and more good, but it must physically grow. There must be more people than there used to be, and that will, by definition, mean that it was a success. And that is its only real reason for existing. So if you show up and you seem like you might be someone who will not help the system grow, then there is very little place for you there. But true religion is to meet orphans and widows in their distress, if that's what it is. Now, there's a couple really, uh, I don't know, controversial things when you, if we're going to go down this road. One of them is that we live in a time when poor people are fat. So what I mean by that is we live in a time where poor people are richer than poor people have ever been and thank god for the for that you know what i mean like that's that's a blessing right but that's one of these things where the church might go i don't know that we really need to do that because is there really a need for us you know what i mean in a world where everyone has enough food are we really needed in that regard so why would we orient our existence around that but my response to that is if true religion is to meet orphans and widows in their distress then yeah maybe you don't you know have to give them money but where is their distress? They certainly have not stopped having distress. And you might say, and this, <laughs> actually, you might think, but never say that, look, 
oh, well, I don't want to deal with orphans. They're going to, they have all kinds of problems and they might ask me for money. And I don't want to deal with widows. They're all old and, you know, lonely and sad and all that. Like, you know, we have these things. We're still human. You know what I mean? All of us. So we have these like things that make us uncomfortable around people that, that are, you know, that need something or that, you know, are not doing well. But if you're not doing well and you walk into the modern church, they will either see you as a thing which will help the growth mechanism. You, When you walk in, they see you as a thing which will help make the pastor a star. And if they don't see you that way, then you're not really at home there. And until people come to terms with how much greed is underneath, and I don't even know if that's the way to say it, right? It's not that uh, pastors are more greedy than average people or pastors are more greedy than me or anything like that. It's more like this is their only conception of what a meaningful life is. Like if they weren't going to chase this, if they weren't going to chase double the people in the sanctuary, they wouldn't know what to chase. This is all they understand about what meaningful life is, what success is. So even if they weren't greedy, even if they were just humbly trying to succeed, you know, this is how they understand it. This is what they know it to be. And so they need a deeper uh, understanding of what a life well lived even is. And we all do, right? Um, yeah. So if the thing that the church believes and lives out, but will never admit, is that it essentially exists to make the pastor a star and to justify its existence by growing in numbers, not depth, but numbers, then it makes perfect sense as to why the church acts the way it does in today's world. It is very growth-oriented. That is how it knows it's on the right track. That is the only way it knows itself to be on the right track. And so if you do not contribute to that, then you are not really... Uh, you're not really going to be at home there. And um, I don't want to be too sentimental about, you know, dealing with the the poor or the distressed or whatever, right? So like my dad used to say, my dad was a uh, a black belt and he used to say that the, the guys who would talk like the biggest and baddest were always guys who had never been in a fight. And the guys who had been in a lot of fights would avoid fights at all costs. And so I think this is also true when you talk about dealing with homeless people or dealing with people that are really not doing good. The people who really do it talk about it in a very sober way. They talk about it in a way that acknowledges how little you can really help someone that doesn't want to be helped. And then the people who don't do it, uh, you know, talk all, you know, bravely and idealistically because they don't actually do it. Right. So <laughs> so I, I, I'm aware of that. Um but where are people where is the modern person's distress i think the modern person's distress you know may not be a lack of food but it is a lack of purpose a lack of meaning you know many of you listening have had this experience where church would set up this thing like they were going to help you figure out like where your life was going or something like that but in the end all it led to was, you know, you can be an introvert who stacks the chairs or an extrovert that stacks the chairs, you know. And so, again, it was ultimately just a completely cynical, self-serving mechanism, but it was setting it up as if it was there to help develop you and not it. Um, so helping people find where they fit in this life, you know, and how there's anything meaningful for them here. Um. I guess my point with all of this is that Christian uh, ideals, Christian-like ethics only exist in a tight-knit setting, in a setting where everyone is completely distant and is completely oriented toward themselves. It doesn't make sense anymore. Um, one, other, one other thing on technology before we get back to the podcast. You know, just something that I've seen over time with technology is that whatever you get to do, you'll end up having to do. And what I mean by that is, you know, so Facebook comes along and you get to talk to all your uh, high school friends. But then you have to talk to all your high school friends because no one hangs out in person anymore. 
So you get to do something, but then soon you have to do that thing. So you get to be, you know, a, a podcaster and YouTuber and run a small business and work a full-time job. But you also have to. And I'm very grateful for a lot of things about the way, you know, life is now. Like having this podcast and having the articles and stuff has really helped me, you know, allow uh, a space for me to like uh, kind of cultivate who I was. And, and that has allowed me to have a lot more peace. Um, with people who are not so much like me. And I don't know why I'm just rambling. I guess I didn't plan to talk this much, but um, but this is just a useful thing to know. I think a lot of times what we call arrogance is really just a person who is like reeling to find where their gift goes and not knowing where it goes. And so they're always like, they're always pushing it into every social setting and talking about their thing, whatever they think their thing is, and just like they're like trying to find a home for it. And I'll speak for me when I'm at church, the fact that I have some outlets allows me to be a bit more graceful uh, with, you know, whatever is going on there, because I do have a way that I can express what I, you know, what I want to say. And if I didn't, I would be more critical. And that, uh, which is, <laughs> I guess, hard to imagine after what I just said. Oh, sorry. But, um, but yeah, so some of what we call arrogance is just people trying to figure out where their, what their shape is and where it goes. But anyway, enough of that. Let's get back in. We, we're more individualistic. We don't sort of do those communal things that once shaped us. The problem is, and I think now a lot of the psychologists and others are recognizing we, it, 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 it's a problem for humans because, um, we, we, we evolved to be these communal creatures who are shaped by the stories that we tell each other and seeing ourselves as part of something bigger. Um, I believe there is a, a story, you know, as a Christian that, that we are meant to see ourselves as part of, but as we lose that, we, um, we kind of, we kind of now imagine ourselves as sort of free floating entities and everyone's having to make their own story. And, as that sort of has accelerated to a kind of fever pitch in a social media age where we're now sort of bombarded with all manner of ways in which you could potentially shape and determine your own identity. I think it, it, especially for young people creates this kind of intolerable burden. It's a lot of the reason I think behind the mental health crisis, the sort of anxiety, depression, suicide, and so on. And what, you know, again, psychology. This is such a big point. You know, as I've already mentioned, so I'll try to keep this short. I guess about a month or so ago, however long, can't remember, they told me that I was going blind, you know, and I've already talked about about that. Um, but what surprised me most is the certain, it's given me a kind of burden that I obviously never had, you know, and that's been tricky to, to handle. But what that didn't really surprise me, you know, you would expect that. <laughs> Uh, at some moments it hits me so hard it does surprise me right but in general you would expect that but what i didn't expect is because going blind takes so many options off the table it allows me to really focus on the few things that will remain on the table and there's so much peace in that i i'm i'm surprised by the peace that i've been given by told by being told i was going blind right that that I guess what I'm saying is I had no idea how much the constant not knowing what my direction should be. I had no idea the price I was paying for that. And again, we live in a time where uh, because you're always being told a new way, every five seconds on, on TikTok, you're being told a new way life could go. You're always um, unsure. You have You have so many options that you're you're just like drowning in a kind of anxiety back to the get to have to thing um and so yeah so that's been a a real blessing i guess um which is labeled the the meaning crisis in our culture where we feel alienated from the world and each other by technology and the loss of this shared story um and i think all these new you know uh trendy uh secular intellectual thinkers are kind of onto something they're they're recognizing it the question is well what's the answer because you know we don't seem to be very good at coming up with a solution 
and it can't simply be let's just start believing again because it is like how do you how do you put that genie back in the bottle but there's got to be something about for me it's it's about helping people to realize that we don't have to live in the story of reality that we've been sort of born into in western culture in 21st century western culture at least this is another thing i want i wanted to bring up um you know the church i was raised in was kind of like a fundamentalist not kind of it was all the churches i was really raised in were kind of fundamentalist baptist kind of uh churches you know what i mean because i'm i'm here in the south and i don't know for whatever reason that's just like the way they always were and i always had questions that I knew the pastor couldn't answer because I knew that if he could answer them or even get close, he wouldn't say the stupid things he's saying that obviously, you know, contradict themselves and all that stuff. Right. Um, and so I didn't ask, and I knew that if I did ask, I would really just be revealing that he didn't know. And that would be uh, embarrassing. And I knew that he was a good man. And so nothing good would come out of it. I wouldn't get answers. He wouldn't, you know, get much, but, um, an awkward feeling and, we go our separate ways, you know, but the older I get, I see that some of the impulse to make everything literal is a desire to tamper uh, complexity, right? So this is exact, I guess the same thing of what I just said about going blind, that going blind limits the options so much and it, it, it directs my future so clearly um, that there's just a lot of peace and groundedness in that. And that that is kind of the fundamentalist impulse, right? To make everything simple by making everything as literal as possible so that we can limit the absolute chaos that comes with never-ending complexity. And that if you allowed your mind to be just never-endingly open and never, (laughs) never settling on anything, then you're just in pure chaos and you'll eventually find that you made yourself God because uh, at the end of the day, you're it's either you're either, you know, going to worship a God or, or, or you'll find out that, uh, you put yourself in that position. I don't see that, that being, uh, there being any other options, but so, so there is, I understand the fundamentalist impulse, but for me, um, it was, it was the thing I had to work through because I wanted more complexity. I wanted, religion seemed thin, like, you know, these other, all these other areas of uh, life and you know culture and all that stuff seemed like deep pools and the religion that i was born into seemed not uh unimportant but the the way it was talked about was very it was shallow it was thin it was like it was so literal that it it just it seemed smaller than other things in the world like so let's take like a completely literal uh, view of scripture in every way. Um, you know, scripture may be more than a book of great literature, but it's at least a book of great literature. It may be more, but it's not less. And so <laughs> that, that was, those like sticking points really, uh, really bothered me. But this is a, a fascinating idea. I don't, I don't really know why I got into that. Actually, there is this, this other story that still has immense resonance and power once people discover it. And this thing that as much as it's a very faulty and broken thing called the church, which has been the bearer of that story and still has the capacity to be a transformative agent for culture and society on earth. So that's, um, that's kind of where I land. I don't have a lot of solutions. I, I, but I do believe that rediscovering that story that sort of ultimately makes sense of all those other stories people are trying to live their lives by is, is for me, the ultimate key to, uh, to how we make sense of, of where the world's gone. I've been. I think the future of Christianity is a technological revolution, meaning I don't think it's that we just say our talking points louder and, and that's how we win or something. I think people need to, This is, I, I wrote an article once uh, about the difference between power and authority. And obviously these are, you know, kind of eternal ideas. These are not, you know, not my ideas. But um, 
but I think that we have to change the way that we live before we can critique society in a meaningful way. That when I was in church and they tried to talk about some serious stuff, it felt so thin because it was so clear that their values and the culture's values were so aligned that when they tried to cross the culture, it seemed weird. It felt out of place. And I think technology is key to all this. And so the next several podcasts are going to be about technology and about the way that I'm trying to tamper my personal appetite, my personal greed. So one of the things that, you know, that I walked away from this recent church experience uh, thinking was, okay, what can I do about any of this? You know what I mean? And, And ultimately, if I want to do anything about what I'm seeing go off the rails here, it has to start with me. You know what I mean? So, uh, so for me, uh, trying to fully walk away from my iPhone, which has been so much harder to detangle, you know, from than I, than I thought it would be, but where, Oh, sorry. I got a text. Um, but the reason is the reason is, is to, how can I, tamper my appetite that if you think about the smartphone as a thing which intentionally escalates appetite for every different kind of thing for shoes for purses for sex for everything that that is an appetite machine then then i want to then i wanted to change my relationship to it so that i live in a way which is a bit different i live in a bit more of a uh slower, more humane way, uh, at a slower pace and where, what am I saying? I guess what I'm saying is how could I create an environment in which these ideals make sense again? And I think without the removal of the smartphone, it doesn't work. I don't see, I don't see it in any other way. I think the smartphone is an emptiness machine and, uh, <laughs> And so I think the future of Christianity is going to be in its contrast to the technological society that we live in. And so I think these little details about how you handle it are not little details, and they're not arbitrary. This argument around a few dinner tables and a few sort of panels, when it's quite common for people who are critical of woke politics, but are not religious, to say something like, you know, it's not enough. Well, increasingly, I mean, there was a phase where there was just lots of criticism of wokeness and now that's sort of, that's been said and there's a more of a move towards saying, well, what, you know, what next? What's a kind of, what's, we know that there's this meaning crisis. We know that young people are lonely, miserable, all the rest of it. Um, what, what, what can we offer in their place? Because clearly people are finding meaning in politics to some extent, mm. even if politics is quite a poor, poor source of meaning ultimately. And, um, and I've, I've had the experience a few times of putting up my hand meekly and saying, have you considered Christianity? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not evangelizing, <laughs> but I'm saying that it's probably the story like that's been believed by more people, you mm. know, mm. throughout human history than any other, just in terms of sort of the raw numbers. And it has a remarkable ability to I don't know if this is important enough to say. <laughs> I guess it is actually. Um, I I hope that in many ways I'm a, a quite a, you know, straightforward Christian by which I mean a quite standard uh, Christian, I guess. But um, even if I didn't believe, I I would. And what I what I mean by that is, um, I think of the the more I learn about the effect that the Christian that Christianity has had on history, um, the more I think that Christianity itself is a kind of miracle. Um, You can see this in the work of René Girard. René Girard talked about how prior to Christianity, um, strength and uh, authority were almost the same thing, that if you won, you were by definition correct. And that uh, disputes were typically solved by Two groups, you know, getting incredibly angry at each other over something, uh, over a rivalry of some kind, and both groups uh, essentially deciding to take it out on a third person, you know, on a third party. And that what Christianity did—sorry, my my uh, stool is squeaking. I got to get a better chair. 
But what Christianity did was it revealed the innocence. It focused and put the focus of the world on the innocence of that third party that all the anger is being taken out on and turned the world upside down in a way. And Tom Holland also, you know, uh, has pointed this out, I guess. But Christianity turned the world upside down in a way that nothing ever has. And I, I think even if I didn't believe the claims of Christianity, I would think that it was itself kind of a miracle. Adapt itself to different cultures and sort of work in different registers. And, um, mm. and uh, so far that hasn't gone down very well. <laughs> because it's seen as sort of moving backwards, which of course it is. But the, um, the, the in a sense, is, and also is it yeah, possible? I, I, Exactly. I think I think the reason you probably meet such incredulity around the dinner table is that's, that's the word. Is, yeah, yeah, <laughs> is because I think people think. Well, not only are you potentially asking me to believe in something that just seems weird and outdated and irrelevant, but you're also potentially asking me to to change the way I live because of it. You know, to to yeah. make different decisions about my life. And I mean, that was. I mean, that was the remarkable thing, again, about your book, you know, if I may come back to it, which is the, the kind of solutions you suggested for how people might have a, a, a happier, more fulfilling sex life or relationships were, were kind of, you know, basically, well, don't just go with the flow with the, what culture says is the best way to find personal expression and freedom and everything. You know, be choosy, uh, wait. Um, and, you know, Christianity sort of says that about, yes, you know that that issue um in fact e e even more draconianly it, it suggests you should wait until you're married and stick to the same person through thick and thin um that's that's a, a high bar in our culture to to kind of call people to but equally it's not just that it's a bar that completely does not work when the church itself is oriented towards fame and success in the world and just bigger means better when when everyone including the pastors are as self-centered as everyone else, then this does not work. There is no incentive for anyone to really uh, give their whole life to sacrifice on, on the altar of these ideals. That the, if they do, you don't offer them anything. It's not like you offer them a close-knit family of people to exist in. You don't really give them anything. Being The average person who goes to church is a tiny bit less lonely than the the average person who doesn't but it's not that different and until it becomes very different you should never be wonder why the church is dying and will continue to die i think i think there are all kinds of things that a thoroughgoing christianity will challenge people to so it's no surprise to me that just presenting it as it's not like just saying have you thought of picking up this self-help book because i think in, in its true form christianity will be a very challenging road for someone to walk down which is partly why I think almost the meaning crisis is going to have to get worse before a lot of people would even begin to consider it. I think it's almost like uh, as long as we've still got the luxury of kind of complaining about it and that, you know, we, we, we've still, I don't know, got enough in our lives to sort of, that we don't have to make those kind of big sacrifices. I think a lot of people will, will choose to reject it. I also think if I'm honest as well, um, it's just harder to make that change as, a, as an adult. I think there's a reason why, you know, most people, if they're going to be a Christian, they've probably made that decision by their late teens and early 20s. That's not to say I haven't met plenty of adult converts. I do. And I'm surprised, actually, by how many I'm meeting these days, interestingly. But I think it just is harder to make a big U-turn in your life when you're you've reached a certain age and it's you it's it's harder to change the trajectory and the, the beliefs you have and the you know the, the way the patterns of your life you know it's it's much much more of a sacrifice so so i don't uh, i'm not at all surprised to hear <laughs> that kind of response around the dinner table most christians were very positive in their responses to my book but a common response i had was why didn't you just go go the whole way why did you say i said i think wait three months into a relationship before having sex um why not say wait before marriage and actually i can tell you that i did think i i basically you know because i wrote so you can see this tension here we live in such an isolated time that the it's just an unspoken rule that the you know, traditional sexual ethic is really 
like incompatible with our time. We live in a time where everyone is incredibly bought off by their own greed. And so there's no real reason to sacrifice this like deep, deep desire. There's, you don't, there's no incentive to do it. You don't get anything if you do. Like people, (laughs) people will continue to be extremely self-centered, even if you give your life for that. And so people instinctively go, what's the point? It's not worth it. The book over the course of uh, a year, a bit more, and I had a baby in the middle. So it was quite a long period of time. And I did basically persuade myself. It's fascinating, I guess, obvious, but fascinating how people become just more traditional, more conservative whenever they have kids. And I don't have kids, you know, but um, it's just fascinating. You could see even the you know wildest uh you know entertainer or comedian or whatever once they have kids like they their their tune changes a bit you know i guess it puts you on a longer timetable it puts your mind on i guess on a longer frame of mind uh sorry a longer like view of time i guess you know by the end of it that actually um uh premarital sex is bad <laughs> like i actually i i i i persuaded myself into the christian position I mean, it's not just Christian, but that position. Mm. Um, and I thought of making that and I thought of advising that explicitly in the last chapter. And then I spoke to my mum, who said, if you do that, that's the only thing anyone's ever going to say about the book. <laughs> that's going to be the top line of every review that, you know, that this is this is what this um, this crazy lady has yeah. suggested. And so mm. I didn't, I toned it down. But and, and, and indeed my final chapter is listen to your mother. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> I followed Very, my own advice in that regard. Advice. And she's right. I think it would have been mm. so mm. shocking and it mm. was intended to be, it, it, the book is intended for people who are. Com- this is another sad reality of, of our world. We, we live in a time of loneliness and we live in a time of, nihilism we we are drowning in so much feeling that life maybe just doesn't mean anything that sexual pleasure is understandably seen as one of very few momentary reliefs from the the dread of existence you know what i mean because in some ways the way we live is so inhuman that it's so abstracted that it the uh that that is, I, I guess, we're just, we don't have a lot of hope. We don't have a lot of vision uh, for why anything means anything, you know? Well, the book ends up, it, I wrote it for people coming from my kind of background, the sort of progressive secular background, um, who are interested in something more, less secular more conservative mm, but mm. interestingly i also have heard from quite a lot of people who come from more um fundamentalist religious backgrounds not just christian also um muslim and jewish women who like it because it yeah is sit somewhere in the middle yeah so i don't regret therefore yeah soft pedaling a little bit i i i, I mean to some extent you you know you weren't there to to peddle a you know, a, a, Christ, a specifically Christian ethic of, of sexuality. It, it happened that you came very close it, it, in the end in some of your conclusions. But um, even what you did suggest was quite radical, you know, in, in today's culture. Yeah. <laughs> and so so I was just pleased to read something that just felt so different, you know, to me. Um, I mean, I, I should say, you know, the, the reality is, you know, a, any Christian who maybe did manage to do the unthinkable and wait until marriage for sex that doesn't mean you're going to have the most wonderful sex life in the world and, and there will never be any issues. Obviously, you're, you're subject to the same issues that everyone else is. But I do think, from what I can tell, from what I've seen in research and I suppose anecdotally, hmm. uh, I do just think that that being an, an option on the table and taken seriously by Christians can have very positive effects. Um, there, there are things about that. And for me, it's it, it's part of a much bigger picture than just the sex and relationships thing it's about it is about that re-enchanting of the world where we no longer treat and this was what really struck me most about your book is the way it le- i don't know that i agree with that this idea that like i mean i could be wrong right in fact i'm sure if i look back on this in the future i probably have what i'm saying it's wrong <laughs> but if two people have both waited you know i think that's beautiful i don't think they're gonna 
engage in, in a really intimate encounter and think, oh, that wasn't as crazy as the, the rant, you know, the wild stuff I read about in magazines or, or, you know, in Cosmo or whatever. <laughs> I don't, the way he framed it was as if like this potentially rather vanilla by a nihilistic, you know, hyper self-centered culture that he framed it as if like a, what the world would consider a mild sexual encounter between two people who have never had that encounter before, that that was somehow less fulfilling than, than, uh, than having some wild encounter because nothing means anything and, you know, uh, or whatever, just the framing is the implicit framing is a little off. I, I think, um, that if anything, like there's something more beautiful about the intimacy than even the the physical part, you know what I mean? That like closeness. And I can't, you know, I can't imagine it being more close and more pure than when two people are, you know, when two people have waited or whatever. Doesn't mean they won't have like marital issues or whatever, but they don't have, they have no context of of a world outside of that. So how is that not an ideal situation? You know what I mean? But I mean, marriage is unbelievably hard, <laughs> but yeah, you know, so I don't, I don't want to speak too definitively, but it's just interesting the way you framed it. Aid bear the, the, just the, the kind of way that um, the commodification of sex and relationships had, has just reached this kind of crazy point in our world now. And, just how tragic it is that that something that obviously has for all the obvious sociological reasons but also deeply spiritual reasons has been treated as as some a kind of really important i guess you could use if you come from a religious background you could use your desire to live a pure life to be ignorant as to what the other party is like you know what i mean so because you try to not you know um because you try to live not that way you could you could be it could be really difficult to talk about um that kind of stuff with your partner or whatever but i'm not even sure that's true i think two people who have waited and are now married um those are the kind of people in general uh that probably could have uh, i could i would argue maybe the best conversation about these really hard matters because of the type of people that you know that do that i don't know thing that needs to be treated carefully um sorry one more thing there's a there's just such a fascinating tie between the way that we treat sex and nihilism the way that we understand meaning i guess we'll get to it a a little bit more in a second but there's just a deep tie there that that our culture doesn't seem to see we need to get to a point where we kind of it's not that we should go back to everything we used to sort of believe necessary or the way we used to act but we need to re-enchant this because it turns out this is really is important. This is psychologically important for people. This makes a huge difference to the way they think about themselves. And you can't just treat it carelessly and as any other plaything. And um, and that makes you sound really kind of conservative and reactionary these days. Oh, but actually, no. Um, <laughs> I've, I've got teenage kids and a teenage daughter, and, and I, I, I just feel like... Oh, I I want them to grow up in a world where it's not treated this way, where where there's something special about this. And um, yours is the kind of book that I am, uh, you know, am passing on to my teenage daughter because I just want her to know whatever you're hearing from TikTok and Instagram and everything else that's in your life. There is this is a kind of sensible way of thinking about these issues that you just need to to have in your life. So. Yeah. So a grateful father here to, to you, Louise Perry. <laughs> I think the vast majority of people think that deep down and to, 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 to stop talking about my book and talk about yours, <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you, you write about this fact that, that humans do seem to have this innate religious drive. I hate this part of interviews where both people are just so like, oh, you're not, stop telling me I'm great. I'm going to tell you you're great. <laughs> it's just, it's sweet like it i guess it'd be a cold world if it didn't if people were never like friendly like that but it's just so irritating yes like probably there's variation um between individuals and some people seem to have 
find kind of religious feeling more easily inspired in them than other people. Um, but we seem to be kind of believing animals. Okay, she's about to get to the... Hold on, let me adjust my stool. i got to get a better chair that doesn't make any noise. She's about to get to the point, which is why I picked this podcast, and I couldn't find... <laughs> I didn't know where in the podcast it was, so I just started at kind of a random point. But but anyways, yeah, she's, she's going to get into what I really want to talk about here. Hmm. And... It, it, trying to suppress that doesn't seem to end well, no, either for individuals I, or cultures. That's right. And and as I say, I think the new atheism sort of tried to to sort of, you know, get rid of it, but failed spectacularly because all, all this other quasi-religious stories, essentially, as I say, came, came on the scene and took over. Um, I mean, I, I was seeing that there's a phenomenon on TikTok now called witch talk, and this is essentially <laughs> using TikTok to kind of, do. By the way, if I see someone on a dating app and they have and they have their uh, their Scorpio sign, immediate pass. Although, yeah, I think I'm. I think I'm. Well, that's for another day. Kind of incantations <laughs> and hexes and charms and kind of get the universe on their side. It's so lame. And, and it's just fascinating because I think that even in our very technological age, you know, we're still using it to essentially kind of. It's like it's like some weird to me it feels like religion for you know white girls whose real religion is shopping at Target invoke supernatural means so that I think there's at one level there just is that kind of supernatural stuff doesn't actually go very far we're still fascinated by you know movies that deal in the supernatural horror movies you know have never mm. lost their appeal astrology, astrology the number of millennial yeah. women mm. who are mm. passionate about astrology yeah yeah absolutely so so all of that mm. is kind of hovering around somewhere you know even in our what a leo thing to say age you know the number of <laughs> the number of calls on the catholic church for instance for um exorcism especially around people who've got involved in the occult in various ways it's it's interesting that that stuff all i'm quite i'm quite practical i guess in in the orientation in that to me i think of satanists as you know just atheists with cooler clothes um because if you think about what satanists and atheists have in common it's basically that um there's no god and therefore i decide that there's nothing outside of me basically you know what i mean and so i guess satanism more formally uh, encourages the person to indulge their you know darker uh you know, you know beliefs or feelings or whatever but to me they seem like almost the same thing so i'm not that like freaked out very easily by i don't know by pentagrams or, or whatever because to me it's just this is an atheist you know what i mean and i don't know that's just how i see it still bubbles away and on top of that, you've got then this other layer of quasi-religious kind of significance that people put into. Because, okay, to clarify, because the, the the atheist impulse is to put yourself on top. It's not. It's not really that. Yeah, I think that's. I think whatever problems a person has with God, or you know, even cruelty they they feel towards him or whatever, if you just keep going down to the bottom and you get to the very bottom, it's that I just wish that I was on top, you know social justice causes and politics and everything else so so i do say that that we're not any less religious we're just religious about different things there is this kind of religious instinct and there's a kind of story story making kind of instinct i think um i think it's got jonathan gottschall who's a sociologist who talks about this that humans have to have a story to live by and um we will end up creating something to make sense of our life even if it's pretty poor insubstantial kind of story but we're this is one thing I love about the the I guess where the conversation on on Christianity is in today's world post Peterson and stuff like that is is all this emphasis on story. I really I actually really agree with that that kind of thing that uh because the materialist, you know, the Richard Dawkins, the Sam Harris's had really kind of won the culture. Uh, the religion I grew up in was very also very materialist in a certain kind of way. And so story was seen as far secondary, far inferior to, um, you know, to things more literal. And that's just not how life works, you know. Uh, story is perhaps primary, you know what I mean? I've mentioned this before, but you 
you pick a president based on a story, you pick a vocation based on a story, you pick a spouse based on a story, story kind of runs the world. We'll, we'll need something. We can't just, we can't cope with the idea that we're rich, actually just sort of bouncing around chaotically without a sort of narrative, you know, to, that makes sense of us. Um, and I just think, yeah, I just think the narrative, the, the stories have been increasingly insubstantial, or at least they're so varied um, and can't agree with each other in our culture that, that, you know, they create this thing we call the culture wars. Um, and I think that for me, the Christian story has got this relevance and resonance you know you talked about the fact it has been instantiated in many different places times and cultures with remarkable success and i just think there's something about that story that seems to work in culture the question is sort of again it's back to that thing of well does it just work because it's a useful fiction we happen to have stumbled upon a really good story i i think it's the other way around i think it it works because it's true um and and i think we're in an exciting moment where some people might be starting to realize that this story not only makes sense of their story, but is, is a, is a real story. It's something that, that sort of makes sense. And one, one person I highlight, I'm sure you're familiar with him as well. Paul Kingsnorth in the book um, is one of those interesting people who's been a storyteller uh, all his life, a poet um, an environmental activist as well at various points. And I think he was always looking for a story. He kind of, the teenage atheist haze kind of happened for him, but then went, and then he was into Buddhism, sort of looking for meaning kind of within, but he felt like he wanted to worship something, you know, he loved nature and, uh, and, and had this reverence, this awe almost for nature. So he kind of turned to Wicca, interestingly, um, which is a bit out there, but he, he sort of was, you know, doing the stuff in the woods and, you know, worshiping nature and, he kind of realized in the end he was sort of doing a sort of weird pastiche of sort of new age quasi-christian you know pagan stuff uh, and it was fun and kind of but he again he didn't didn't do this full job and in the interviews i've had with with paul he was very surprised to find that it was a christian story in the end that that suddenly made sense of it all to him um it wasn't some in a sense sort of hugely intellectual conversion though he's a very highly intelligent person but it was just a sense that when he stepped into this story, when he kind of stepped into, um, in the end, the Eastern, Eastern Orthodox Romanian church, which he became part of, suddenly the liturgy, the the story, uh, the worship, the sense of, of, he said it felt like he had come home. He sort of, this story suddenly made sense of all the searching that had gone on before. And um, I guess I look at a Paul Kingsnorth, again, someone who in their, I guess, late 40s, came to faith uh only in the last few years and and if it can happen to paul kingsdorf i think well it could happen to quite a few other people actually there's a sort of there's a chance that that religious longing might just find its home again in in the greatest story ever told as they say so so that's again some people have said i'm too optimistic because because that sea of faith could wash in all other kinds of of things and but but i might I've, I've, I guess I've just got a, a hope and a faith that it's the Christian story that will eventually wash in and wash the other ones away. Have you read King's North essay? Uh, I think it was for First Things, uh, Wild Christianity. Mm, yes. A year or two ago. Kind of... Such a beautiful essay. Mm, yeah. And I, I, um, I mean, so speaking personally, I'm kind of in that. I... I find Christianity very, very compelling intellectually and emotionally, but I find the metaphysics difficult. Mm. And I think it's because we've sort of had this fire break. I think that if I had been born some centuries ago, I would have just believed mm -hmm. completely. I would have been raised believing and I would have just believed and it would never have really been. I don't, I don't think I'm sort of a natural atheist. I think I would have um, embraced the, the faith that I swam in at the time. But given that I wasn't, it's now quite hard to really, you know, to mm. sign up for all of it. Yeah. Okay. So this is something people always say, right? Like, you know, I'm down with a lot of Christianity, but what about that weird stuff? You know what I mean? What about the like coming back to life stuff and the walking on water stuff? Like what about all the weird stuff? You know what I mean? And I would say, what if that stuff, the weird stuff, what if it was a feature, not a bug? What if it was not an accident to be explained away? But what if it was 
the thing which holds everything else together. Let's take a few other examples where you step away from rationality. Uh, bishop Barron, the Catholic bishop who who I like very much, he he said once that uh, that faith is on the far end of reason or on the far side of reason, meaning that faith and reason uh, do work together, but that you know that faith is on the far side of reason. But let's talk about a few situations in life where um, reason becomes almost unimportant. The first uh, that comes to mind is. Uh, something that C.S. Lewis once wrote that when people uh, are really happy to be together, when people really love each other and are are very excited to be together, that they'll laugh at things that aren't funny. Um, You'll see this anytime you get a group of people together. And if everyone is just very happy to be there, then there will be, there will be disproportionate laughter to the wit. You know what I mean? That, that something doesn't need to be that funny for everyone to laugh. And that's because the love makes the need for cold rationality. It, 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 it takes the necessity for someone to coldly say, but that wasn't very, actually, that was a quite unintelligent joke. Like, that's totally, who cares? That's totally unimportant, right? And so the love removes the necessity for reason, that reason as a way to figure what, figure things out, to study things, to master things. It's just not important in that moment. It's just not. The other example is, 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 we're back to this topic, (laughs) but in a different way, I want to frame this in a different way now. The other example is sex. Well, as a human, completely outside of morality, whatever you think about it, why does sex have the position it does for humanity, for humans? Why does it have this kind of unique um, pull and this kind of unique specialness? Why does it have this like transcendent, like, uh, wonder associated with it, and is that not it? Is the is the thing that makes it? I would argue the thing that makes it that way is that it transcends rationality. People who are in love are not rational. They might actually, you know, <laughs> they might actually delight in in how irrational the situation is that they. In that moment, it pulls them out of the weight of rationality. That if you think about the, if you think about rationality as a kind of weight that lives on your brain, where it's like a, it's like that feeling that someone is like sitting on top of your brain and everything, the weight of everything adding up and everything making sense. The reason sex is so powerful is that it, for one moment, it relieves you from living in that world. For a minute, you transcend the world of logic you transcend the world of reason and you go to a different place where it doesn't matter anymore where you you transcend the need for everything making sense for mastery and you're pulled out of it in that like magical just intense moment is it it gives you that kind of transcendent feeling because it is relieving you from the burden of mastery from the burden of control. It is relieving you from that. And so there's an element of Christianity and there's an element of seemingly most religions that stand the test of time. There's there's this like magical element and it is not arbitrary. It is not a bug to be gotten rid of. It is a feature. It is a thing where at the far end, when you really feel like you are in the room with God, you transcend the world of things making sense. You transcend logic. You transcend the weight of control, the weight of mastery, the weight of the need for any of it. You're in a place where it doesn't matter anymore. And I'm not suggesting that a lack of reason is in itself a good thing. You know, if you've ever lived in a dysfunctional house or or you know what I mean? Uh, if you've ever lived in a place where people didn't reason, it is not a good thing on its own. But if you live in a world where there is only reason, where nothing can escape the bond of control of I must figure out everything, I must map every inch of the universe, then you will be equally hopeless. There is something. There's some deep tie to this transcendent feeling of 
being pulled out of the dullness of control. And I think that it is not arbitrary that all the major religions which have stood for thousands of years have these elements. And yeah, that's that's uh, really what I wanted to uh, to get at here with with today's uh, podcast. That um, you know maybe the even maybe the part that isn't rational, maybe that's a, a feature and not a bug. Anyway, I hope you guys like the new format. Um, it, I'm really excited to get into it uh, for a lot of reasons. One, it's it it will allow me to make them more often, and I can just listen to stuff with you guys. And uh, I just I'm really really excited about it. And I hope oh, this came out okay. And uh, yeah, I love you guys. I hope this has been uh, of some blessing to you.